Good morning. <clears throat> it is a little bit like um, homecoming for me uh, because I'm looking out over a congregation and I, I think I know maybe a third of you, uh, which isn't always the case when we go to churches and, and update. I'm seeing people now for the first time that I didn't see earlier. But what a wonderful privilege it is uh, to be here this morning to see so many of the folks that we've known for a long time, like Stan. Stan was, I think, telling one of my sons downstairs that he's known me since I was this tall. And that's true, I think, it's true. And uh, Stan was on the session as I worked through, you know, ordination exams and all of that. Um, so I'm just uh, so thankful uh, to be here with you this morning and to have had a chance to meet also your missions committee over a few Zoom meetings now and to talk to Steve numerous times and to share a vision for what God is doing uh, in West Africa. Um, but this morning, it's a great privilege to just open God's word uh, together and to hear God speak to us. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter uh, 47, Psalm 47. I was going to give you a page number, but I don't think it would relate. <laughs> psalm 47. And let's look together uh, at this psalm. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And this is God's word for his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning as we've already prayed and sought your help for this time together. We pray that you would truly open our eyes, Lord, to see new and wondrous things in your word. Meet us here in this place, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Instruct our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What a lot of returning missionaries are hesitant to, to tell you or to report uh, is that there are many days where we wake up on the field and we're asking ourselves, why are we here? Uh, there are even days when we wake up and we think, uh, can we go home? And I know our family has experienced that many times over the last five years. And as I reflect back on the 18 years that I was a pastor, I may have heard hints of that from visiting missionaries, but I'm here to tell you that that is just a reality. It's a reality. Take all the normal pressures of raising teenagers, of getting your car fixed, of going uh, to the doctors, of uh, fixing things that break around the house, or taking your car to be worked on, or whatever, and multiply that by a factor of 10 or more, the, I call it the third world factor. Uh, power cuts, water that's not running for days, um, constant security concerns, language and cultural confusion, not to mention the internal struggles that we're always wrestling with 
the sin that's in our own hearts, the doubts that arise, the confusion that's there, working through suffering that God has brought into our life. It's a constant challenge. And we need psalms like this, Psalm 47, which I'll call a perspective psalm. As I was thinking about it, actually, I thought Psalm 47 is a bit like a cliff bar. For those of you know who, that know what cliff bars are. Cliff bars are what endurance athletes will eat uh, to replenish their calorie supply or their protein supply or whatever to get through their marathon or their, their, their Ironman or, or whatever it is. Well, Psalm 47 is one of those cliff bars or maybe uh, an emergency IV drip that, that we have uh, uh, inserted in our arms to give us those vital Bible nutrients that we need to go another day on the field when things are unraveling around us. It's a, it's a psalm for weary missionaries, but it's also a psalm for weary churches. It's a psalm for weary missions committees. It's a psalm for churches that are thinking about God's call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when I say we need Psalm 47, what I really mean is that we need the one that we meet in Psalm 47. And of course, that's Jesus. Remembering what Jesus told his disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, we read, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. So we are reading now this psalm, Psalm 47, through a, a very unique New Testament lens, the lens of Jesus himself, knowing that Jesus fulfills this psalm, sheds light on this psalm, knowing that when we read it, we can expect to meet the risen Christ. And so that's my hope this morning. Not that we'll just read words on a page and even reflect on the depth of their meaning, but that they'll take us straight to the heart of Jesus himself for the world and for our lives too. As you probably know, there are psalms for praising God, uh, there are psalms for thanking God, there are psalms for confessing sins, there are psalms for voicing even our anger and expressing our doubt, and every imaginable human emotion can be find in, found in the psalms. This psalm, Psalm 47, is for those who are desperate to know that God is still on his throne. And you don't have to be a missionary to need that message this morning. I don't know what the Lord has brought into your life in the last seven days. But you need to hear and I need to hear like a cliff bar for an endurance athlete that God is still on his throne. Scholars call this psalm a war psalm. Maybe you feel like you're in a battle this morning. Or a victory psalm, or a psalm of enthronement, a psalm that reminds us that, that Jesus is exalted and he's on his throne. Or now, as we will affectionately refer to it, a cliff bar psalm, which is sure to get about zero traction in the academic community. But I like it, so we'll use it. Notice that we're told, first of all, that this is a psalm to the choir master. I didn't read that, but I could have. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. The choir master, of course, was the director of music in the tabernacle or in the temple. And in David's day, these choir masters were highly organized as a guild responsible for leading worship. 
Well, this was a subset of the musicians or those leading worship in the tabernacle or temple known as the the sons of Korah. And they have an interesting story also because Exodus 6 tells us that they're related to Kohath, who was one of the Levites responsible for leading worship. But in Numbers 16, one of these Kohathites named Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and the ground opened up under them and swallowed them alive in this very dramatic scene that we read about. But in 2 Chronicles 20:19, maybe seven generations later in the days of Jehoshaphat, we read this, that they stood up again to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. So there's a story, I think, of judgment and grace, even in the story of the, the ones who authored this psalm. God had preserved a remnant of these Kohathites, the sons of Korah, and they are the ones who have given us Psalm 47, and they've given us at least 11 other psalms. And Psalm 47 here is in a small collection that we find between Psalm 44 and 49. But this morning, let's look at this psalm together under three headings. Let's look at the joy of the peoples spoken of. Let's look at the worship of the peoples. And let's look at the unity of the peoples. So we have the joy, the worship, and the unity of the peoples. Notice how we see the joy of the peoples spoken of in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. This verse speaks of a joy now that exceeds all other joys for the peoples of the world. Now, who are these peoples? The text tells us in verse 1, shout or clap your hands, all peoples. We also see mention of the peoples in verses 3 and verses 8. Well, these people are the shared, are the people who share a language and a culture together in the world. And in Africa, of course, and in West Africa where we live, there are many ethnic groups, and you have many around you too. You have the peoples at your front door. These are people who share a language. These are people who share a culture. And then we also have the nations. We have the peoples and we have the nations. Verses 3 and 8 also refer to the nations. These are people related to one another by their political alignments, perhaps. And so the psalm is covering the whole gamut here. It's covering various ethnic groups. It's, it's covering political alliances and agreements. And we hear echoes, don't we, of the Great Commission in this verse. Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. We hear Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And the nations, there's the equivalent to the peoples spoken of in this psalm. Now, we don't know how many different peoples there are in the world today, to be exact. But somewhere, we're told, around 17,446, give or take, different people groups in the world today. Now, what's important to know is that 7,400 of that 17,446 are what we consider unreached peoples. People who, have not, who do not have regular access to the gospel. People groups who have fewer than 100 known believers, perhaps. There's different ways to qualify what we call an unreached people group. But these people groups make up somewhere around 
uh, 3.23 billion people on this planet. So 10 times perhaps the size of the U.S. population. <laughs> Think about it that way. So you have 7,400 unreached people groups who trace historically their, their, their roots back to the splintering of humanity at the Tower of Babel on Genesis 11, where God confused the languages of the people and spread humanity across the face of the earth. But I can't get out of my head the fact that there are still 7,400 people groups and many of those people groups don't even have the scriptures or the whole scriptures in their languages in 2022. We need to drill down on the joy because we're told in this verse, clap your hands all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Why are the nations to be joyous? What's the reason for clapping? Well, it's interesting to me that when we're in Senegal, quite commonly we're stuck in traffic. Dakar is a very busy city, and there's traffic everywhere. And it can take an hour or two to go five miles in our city sometimes. And oftentimes I'll be in traffic and I'll be utterly frustrated without an ounce of joy in my face, I'm sure. And I can look out the windows at a street beggar standing there trying to sell me a roll of paper towels who appears more happy than me. And it's in those very moments, sometimes I ask myself, uh, why am I here? <laughs> These people seem abundantly happy already without me on, with far less. And you'll notice that, you'll notice that the people where we live uh, generally seem to be very content. They're very warm, they're very hospitable, they're willing to share the very little they have as they make two to three dollars a day on average. And they're content. And I want to ask, by what authority do I come here and try to share a message that is utterly foreign to them and convince them to turn from Islam and embrace the Jesus of the gospel? That's a question that every thoughtful missionary is faced with. And the answer that this psalm offers us is that this is not just a surface-level joy that we are selling. This is not just a veneer of happiness, nor is it a warm hospitality or a cultural warmth. It is something much deeper than that. It's a joy, first of all, rooted in knowing who the God of the Bible is. Look at verse 2 again. We read, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. It's incredibly easy to miss, I think, some of the details, even in this verse. First, God is the Lord. He's the Lord. Not a generic reference to God here. Our English translations usually capitalize the word Lord to signify that we're trying to get at that four-letter Hebrew name for God, the Tetragrammaton, it's called. We don't even really know how it's pronounced today because it's a consonant-only language, ancient Hebrew is. But we've tried Yahweh, we've tried Jehovah. We'll go with Yahweh. This is the covenant name that God gave Moses in Exodus 3.14 where we read, God said, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites 
I am has sent me. And God at that point revealed a, a very personal name to Moses. And that name became a name identified with the God of Israel. Israel was now on a first name basis with God. Israel was unique from all the other nations of the world. Because the other nations didn't have a covenant God. In fact, the whole idea of covenant is very unique to Israel. And now God is revealing himself to Israel covenantally, personally, and putting an exclamation point on it by giving Israel his proper covenantal name, Yahweh. So the God we're speaking of is a covenant God who can be personally known to every one of you in this room. The second thing we're told in this verse is that he is called the Most High. He's El Elyon. So if Yahweh is a covenant name, Most High is a comparative name. He is the Most High God over all the other gods of the world. But are there other, other gods beyond, beyond Yahweh? Are there actually other gods? We know there are no other actual gods besides Yahweh, that he is alone. But all the idols of the world, which are demonic at their root, rival the God of the Bible as gods. Isaiah 43, 10 says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am Yahweh, and besides me there are no others. And Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10, that every time you sacrifice to an idol, you're in essence sacrificing to a demon. And before I left to come home uh, here to the U.S. for a couple months this summer, I was with our, our students together at the Timothy House. And we were praying for the country because the country on Jan July 31st is going to have a big legislative election. And leading up to these legislative elections, what we often find happening in Senegal is we find people beginning to sacrifice to their ancestral gods. Even those who embrace Islam return to their ancestral gods, and they begin to sacrifice, and those sacrifices can be human sacrifices in order to turn the tide on the election. And this psalm is telling us that Yahweh's power extends over the spirit world of Satan and demons, over the ancestral gods of West Africa and the gods of the nations, Yahweh's power extends over all of those which, if you live in a place like West Africa, is very good news because every home you move into, every village that you visit has these gods, and these gods are to be feared. But as believers, we know we don't need to fear them at all. It's very, very good news. You know, the home that we live in in Senegal even among some of our believing friends, is considered to be cursed. <laughs> we've had so many things happen in this home that when we've returned, our Christian friends have told us, you need to get out of this home. And we've had to cling to the fact that, no, we serve El Elyon, God Most High, who is over all gods. The third thing that we're told is that He's to be feared. Look at it. It says, for the Lord, verse 2, the Most High is to be feared. The word is awesome. The actual Hebrew word means terrible. So let that register this morning with you. For the Lord, the Most High, is terrible. A great king over all the earth. Now the terribleness here is in, in the sense of his power and his majesty in the way we're to reverence this God for his power and his majesty. 
And then we're told that he's king over all the earth, which is a revolutionary statement because in the ancient world, the gods were territorial gods, but this psalm reveals a God that is not a local deity. He is Yahweh, a covenant personal God above all gods, terrible in his judgments and his power. He is not a local deity. He lays claim to every village, every people group, every nation, and every person in this room. And then we're told, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, the King over all the earth. That is to bring the nations of the world to joy because of what Yahweh has done. Well, what has Yahweh done? Look at verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. This is a joy not only rooted in who our God is as our covenant God, but it's a joy also rooted in what he's done. And what has he done? He subdued the peoples, the nations, we're told, under our feet, our being Israel. God brought Egypt and perhaps uh, Egypt out, exiled against the greatest superpower of their time. And after that, 40 years later, a new generation of Israelites who had never held a weapon or seen war emerged from the wilderness to take on and overthrow the powerful Canaanite armies. How did Israel do this? Well, Israel did this because of God, because of Yahweh, who subdued the nations, we're told, under us, the nations under our feet. Why? Verse 4. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. It's covenant language. In Genesis 12, Abraham is promised land. He's promised that God will make him into a great nation. And he's promised that Abraham's descendants will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And wrapped up in that promise of land is this promise that God is going to build a nation. He's going to preserve the seed of the promise of Genesis 3.15, he's going to make Israel, if you will, a microcosm of his redeemed people in this world. He's going to plant them in a new garden, if you will, and make that promise of once again restoring this world and reversing the curse and bondage of sin. You see, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. That's what Isaiah 49 says. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. And the Exodus, with all of its, all of its historical events, was just a foreshadowing of the greater Exodus that we have in the New Testament. Now, how has Yahweh acted again in history? For the joy of the nations. Israel failed to be a light to the nations. Canaan failed to be a reboot of the Garden of Eden. But there's a type there, a microcosm, if you will. Well, the answer is in Jesus. John 8 says that Jesus told the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to kill him because they recognized that Jesus was claiming 
to be the very same Yahweh, the covenant God, spoken of here in Psalm 47. And before I came home, I was meeting again with a friend in our community, a Muslim friend who I've spent now considerable time with around this very verse in John 8, trying to convince him, in fact, that Yahweh has acted again in history by taking flesh and dwelling among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is such a challenge, such a spiritual battle to discuss the scriptures with this man and most men and help them to see that the God of the Old Testament has become incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the most high God showing decisive power over the powers of darkness. When we read the Gospels and we see Jesus driving out demons, when we see him interacting with those who are demon-possessed, when we see him going into dark places, that this is Yahweh, the Most High, in the flesh, taking his stand against the powers of darkness in this world. And when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden, he said to them, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And when he said to them, I am, he was saying, I am Yahweh, they drew back and fell to the ground. But the most incredible, most mind-boggling thing is that this God, who is most high, who's terrible in his judgments, who's king over all the earth, who is Israel's covenant God, not only took flesh and dwelt among us, but humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross for you and for me. That's what's astounding, is that this God, who is so high and so lofty and so sovereign and so powerful, took flesh to give his life away for you and me at the cross. He has now ascended to his throne, and he is the God of Psalm 47. That's the joy of the peoples. That's the joy. It's not a superficial joy. It's actually a triumphant joy. It's the joy of seeing your home team victorious on the field. It's the joy that we saw on the streets of Senegal, I think it was, back in February, when our soccer team, our Senegalese soccer team, won the African Cup of All Nations by defeating the Egyptian soccer team, and the city streets erupted, and millions of people fled to the streets, and there were days of parades, and there were cars that were totally turned upside down, and the soccer team landed, and they, they stood on top of a bus, and it took them all day to get from the airport just a few miles away as people were blocking the roads, and they were cheering, and they were celebrating because the victory that had happened on the field against the Egyptian soccer team was now being celebrated among the people who owned this team. And friends, if you're a believer in Christ, you've already had a victory. It's already happened on the field. It's happened at the cross. And now this joy should be elevated among you. It should be present in your worship. It should define you as a people. It should be the joy we read about in this psalm. And that's what we see beginning to break out in the world today among the nations and even in the most distant, far-off, dark places and among one people group at a time. We see the joy of the victory that happened at the cross beginning to rise to the surface in communities of worship. So let's talk about the worship of the peoples. That's the joy of the peoples. 
Let's talk about the worship of the peoples. God is very concerned about your worship this morning. He's very concerned about how you came in here. He's very concerned about the attitude of your heart as we sang those songs. He's concerned about your communion with him as we pray the prayers that we pray together in fellowship and worship together. He's concerned about the attitude of your heart right now as his word is open and you listen to the preaching of God's word. He's concerned about all of that. Notice how the beauty and diversity of worship are expressed. The sons of Korah couldn't be more emphatic. They couldn't contain themselves, in fact. What do we have? Clap your hands. Don't think I heard any clapping this morning. Well, I did. Unfortunately, it was for me. <laughs> Clap your hands. It's the first word of the psalm. For a reason. Yahweh is victorious over sin and death. The world is being restored radically. And one day the new heavens and new earth will come. And the victory is ours. Our team won. Our man won. Clap your hands. Rhythmically expe express this deep, profound victory that's bubbling up inside of you. We had some rhythm back here. We'll check that off. The actual word for clap in Hebrew, there's two words for clap. This word is actually the word strike. So we'll say loud clapping. The kind of clapping I heard on the streets when our team won. Verse 1 also. Shouts and cries of joy. The ESV, if you're reading it, says shout to God with loud songs of joy. But the word songs is not in the verse. This is loud shouts of joy. Some older translations have it. Shout to God with voice of triumph. Again, streets of, of, of our city. Victoria's soccer team. I don't know who your hometown team favorites are because you're in Maryland. But you know when your team wins and you're sitting in front of the TV with your buddies and you're eating the chicken wings or whatever you do and they win, you know what a voice of triumph is. You've won or you watch your kid score a goal on the soccer team and you're the dad jumping out of his chair and rejoicing in that moment. The voice of triumph will multiply that by infinity when you think about what Jesus has done for us, about what our personal covenant God has done for our, us, the most high God, the terrible God who humbled himself and took your place at the cross. Think about that. Shouts and cries of joy. And then we have trumpeting even in verse 5. Maybe I'm not here on a day where there's the trumpeter. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet or a shofar. A horn, a ram's horn, used to summons the, the army for, for battle or to announce the returning victorious king. And our king has returned from the battlefield where he's won the victory. And the shofars should be lined up announcing his victory. There's a joy in worship that translates cross-culturally with beauty and diversity like nothing you can imagine. And then singing, of course. And I've held singing to the end. Verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6. And count the, 
number of times we read the word sing or singing. Verses 6 and 7, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. I think five references to singing. Singing is very important to God. It's very important to missions, obviously. The structure of the psalm tells us, the way the psalm is written actually, originally, tells us that singing is, is ultimate in the expressions here of praise and victory. All these other expressions of joy, the clapping and the shouting and the trumpeting and, and all of that fall short without singing. These other expressions englobe singing. Why? Because lyrics engage the heart. Deeper than music itself, lyrics like poetry engage the heart. By the way, we're reading poetry, you know that. God wants to be remembered. He wants to be written about. He wants to be cherished in your song as a church. And he wants to be cherished in the song of every church among every people group in this world. And the rhythm that's expressed in that people group is different than the rhythm expressed in this one. And the way this people group forms its poetry and magnifies something that's inestimable in its worth is different than the way this people group does it. And God wants to be worshipped in that multicultural, multi-ethnic diversity that the world accords. Why did I write love songs to my wife? I Sadly, putting that in the past tense, it's been a while. Why did I write love songs? Because songs engage the heart. Beauty and wonder stir us to deep places. God wants to be worshipped from the deep places of our heart. And the word for psalm in verse 7, very interestingly, is a Hebrew word that's very hard to truly understand. It actually means understanding or contemplation or something like that. And the idea here is that we're to sing with deep contemplation and deep understanding a psalm to the Lord. Now, as the joy of what Jesus has done, his victory on the battlefield, spreads to all peoples, the reality of his kingdom becomes more and more visible, and this creates a rich diversity. So I want to take you in your minds with me right now, because some of you will never visit us, but some of you will, Go with me now. We're entering into worship for just a moment because it happened already. We're four hours ahead here. And if you entered into worship with us this morning, the first thing you would know in West Africa or you would feel is the absence of all air conditioning. You would feel the heat. It would hit you as soon as you got up, made your way out the door. And, but especially as you crowded into a small, very small room, maybe... One-fifth the size of this? I don't know. One-fourth? With 80 to 90 other people. No air conditioning. Temperatures in the room soaring to over 100 degrees. Crammed together. With people who have waited all week for this moment. I tell you, for them it's the highlight of their week. They've endured their week. They've done all the little things and big things they've had to do. 
to, to, to pull together their existence, to, to, to have a meal for their family. And they've waited for this ultimate moment of their week together. And they're there, and they're eager. The second thing you'd notice is very flexible time constraints. Very flexible. Time is not being measured in minutes or hours, but in songs and prayers. Again, people have waited all week for this. The last thing they want to do is just check it off a list and, and do it and leave and have to wait another week. They want to make it last as long as they can, and sometimes they make it last all day. Before I came here, I was in Sierra Leone for a worship service that lasted three and a half hours. And services can often last that long. And the next thing that you'd notice as soon as the songs start is lots of clapping. In fact, that was a big surprise for us. Everything happens with clapping. Every song, the rhythm of every song is carried along with lots of clapping, sophisticated clapping. In fact, strategically planted in the congregation are what we call expert clappers who have apparently had specialized training from their youth in knowing how to clap alternative rhythms and melodies and all kinds of crazy clapping. And there are actually one or two, we call them loud clappers. These are people who strike their hands with such force that they can be heard above all, all the others. Lots of clapping. Every song has clapping. And it takes time to learn the clapping, not just the lyrics. And then the singing. Lots of singing. At least an hour of singing. 30 minutes of that hour are usually one continuous song that goes on and on. And it may be off key to your ears. And then drumming. We're in Africa. Lots of drumming. Lots of drumming. Young boys, old boys, some women drumming incredibly beautifully. And then throughout the service, another thing that was very hard to get used to, people standing, and as Stan was reading the passage for us before we got up here, and he talked about Solomon lifting his hands towards heaven and praying, they do that literally. Eyes open, usually into the heavens, although we have a roof over us. Hands oftentimes raised. Everybody praying in their mother tongue, and there's three or four of them in our congregation, out loud at the same time. I remember early on thinking, I, this is too hard. I can't hear myself think. I can't pray. Uh, you know, but after these years, it's one of the things that we find most beautiful. Everybody's praying and crying out to the Lord at the same time. Shouts and cries of triumph mingled with deep and earnest pleas for help. Can you see it? Can you hear it? Why does it matter? John Piper said, the fame and greatness and worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. He goes on and says, the strength and wisdom and love of a leader, let's just say who our leader is, 
the strength and wisdom and love of Jesus, King Jesus, is magnified in proportion to the diversity of the people who, can inspi- who he can inspire to follow him with joy. That's what's happening around the world because triumph, deep-seated, joyful triumph of the peoples always results in the worship of the peoples, spontaneous praise of the peoples. And sometimes I wonder if we've got it here or not. If we've domesticated our worship too much. If we've intellectualized it too much. If it really captures the conquest and victory of our king. Finally, the unity of the peoples. This might be the most beautiful sort of uh, maybe theological secret of the whole passage. We can call it a mystery revealed, in fact. Look at uh, verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Shields probably means kings, but the as there, look at verse 9. The as, the princes of the peoples gather, as, it's not really there. It's not there in, the, in, our, in our Hebrew Bibles. There's no as. But actually there's nothing between gather and the people. The princes of the people gather the people of the God of Abraham. It's a little bit of a mystery. It literally reads... The princes of the peoples gather, and I want to almost put a comma there, but there wouldn't have been commas in ancient Hebrew. The people of the God of Abraham. You say, who cares? You've come 4,000 miles to give us that little tidbit. It's a big tidbit. It's a huge theological tidbit. It's revolutionary. Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus will, at the end of the age, gather, according to this psalm, as the one people of the God of Abraham. There's no two futures or two people. The curse of Babel is broken. Somehow the sons of Korah were able to prophetically see down the road of, of history to one new humanity that this king, Yahweh, would create in himself. You see, one of the greatest challenges facing and the greatest uh, potential devastations for the early church was the existence of a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There's one. The princes of the peoples, 17,466 people groups, the princes and leaders of those people, and they're the representatives, with their people, they gather as the people of the God of Abraham. God was starting with Israel. Israel was the first people group to be ransomed. He used Israel to bring Jesus into this world, to bring our Redeemer into this world, to give us victory at the cross. But his aim, his aim was always the peoples of the earth, to make them one new humanity. 
one day we will gather around the throne of Jesus, shoulder to shoulder with our Wolof and Sarer and Fulani and all the people groups. We will gather together with them. As one people, God is making one new man out of all the people groups of the world. That's why if you come and visit us in Senegal and you come to church on Sunday, you'll feel like family. You're one with them. I'm one with them. I have a different language. I'm learning their language. The culture is very different from the culture I grew up. But what unites us is so much deeper than all of that. It's the victory that happened on the field. It's the victory that happened at the cross where our man, King Jesus, our covenant God took flesh, paid the penalty for our sins to ransom us from sin and death and give us new life. Let me close with just three quick questions for you to ponder, to help you apply all this. And I mean this sincerely. Do you know this joy, this joy of triumph that exceeds all other joys personally in your life? I'm not asking you whether or not you participate in this church or any church or if you grew up in the church. I'm really asking you whether or not this joy that exceeds all other joys, I'm asking you whether or not your heart has been conquered by King Jesus. Has Jesus displaced and defeated all your other gods? All your other substitutes? Has he conquered your heart, set you free, and given you this joy that exceeds all other joys? Do you know Jesus? Secondly, how is your joy in Jesus today, if you have it? How is it overflowing the banks of your life today as a river to reach the world? How is this infectious joy reaching the world? Is the mission of your life aligned with the mission of God for this world? To make one new man from all the peoples of the world. And thirdly, does your life and your worship today reflect the reality that your king is reigning? Has he subordinated all your worries? Of course, we all worry. But is his sovereign, powerful hand calming your anxious heart? on a daily basis or have you settled into a passionless subpar overly anxious subpar Christian existence then maybe you need a cliff bar this is it read this psalm and many others like it read this psalm as a cliff bar really receive the vital spiritual nourishment that it affords you and reflect on who your God is and what he's do, what he's done to subdue not only the nations, but what he's done to subdue you and subdue me and bring him into his family. Amen. Father, thank you this morning for your word.
Thank you for the joy of worship. Thank you for your work of subduing the peoples, King Jesus, by your work at the cross. Thank you, Lord, that this victorious joy, it, it overflows the, the, the riverbanks of our lives and it touches the world today. Thank you that we can see how you are literally bringing the nations to their knees in joyous triumph today. We see that. We see that in West Africa on a regular basis. We see it here too. And pray for Fairhill, Lord, that you would make Fairhill a place where Jesus is exalted, where the peoples, Lord, are constantly being reached with the gospel and where Jesus Christ can be worshipped as the reigning king. Amen.